The Fate of Man by H.G. Wells Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Introduction I have been asked to set down as simply and clearly as I can, in one compact book, the reality of the human situation. That is to say, I have been asked to state the world as I see it and what is happening to it. This is the result. A very large part of my conscious life has been a struggle for effective knowledge. I've attempted to collect and summarize existing knowledge so that it could be made available in human living, and to induce other and abler people to take up the same work. I've worked also to bring together incompatible systems of thinking about reality. Systems which ignore each other stupidly and wastefully, that are manifestly answerable for much fundamental confusion in human thought. These unresolved, contradictory philosophies and theologies encumber the human mind, and their irresolution is largely due to an elaborate mutual disregard. I am exceptionally intolerant of such inconsistencies, because if I attempt to deal with them, they worry and entangle me. I cannot make the necessary reservations and adjustments. The peculiar strength and the peculiar weakness of my mind are one and the same quality. Put favorably, mine is a very direct mind. Put unfavorably, it is unsubtle. I am impatient of complicating details and conventional misstatements because I am afraid of them. The reader will find this book ego-centered, for so we all began, and also insistent. I hammer at my main ideas, and this is an offense to delicate-minded people. If a door is not open, I say it is shut. And I am impatient with the suggestion of worldly wisdom that it may be possible to wangle a way around. Yet there may be a way around if you do not lose yourself getting there. You have been warned that I shall not be with you in any such uncertain enterprise. I work not simply for knowledge, but for a stark clarity of thought about it. It seems to me a fair challenge to demand a lucid statement of the vision of the universe to which this directness of inquiry and assemblage have brought me. That vision may affect many readers as unflattering to human self-esteem. I cannot help that. It is the way in which reality has unfolded itself before me. By way of introduction, I will tell how I came to see the world as I do. Then in the subsequent sections, I will give the conclusions at which I have arrived today. I will tell what I first saw of life, how I saw it, how I was allowed to see it, how my range of vision extended, how knowledge, experience, and imagination accumulated and horizon opened beyond horizon. I was born in a rather unprosperous home. There was no nursery, and most of my waking day was spent in an underground kitchen. Very little remains in my memory now of that first world, my infantile world. As I saw it then, it seemed to be the only world. When I put together the notes for this introduction, I sat for a time doing my utmost to recall what picture of the world I had in early childhood. I get scarcely anything at all. It must have been a very limited picture. I had few general ideas, or none. For instance, my mind was not living in a flat world or a round world or anything of that sort. I was not bothering about any shape or size of the world. 
I was entirely incurious about all that. I was just living in the world. I was informed that there was a home for little children above the bright blue sky. But I do not remember that that interested me in the slightest degree. I was rather more concerned about old Bogey, who would come and fetch me if I told fibs and so on. And I rather disliked, but I did not think very much about, a certain divine eye that was always watching me, generally with disapproval. But as far as my recollections go, I was much more afraid of bears, tigers, black men, red Indians, and other dangers lurking in the shadows upstairs and around the corner. That infantile world was a world of vivid, immediate, inconsecutive realities against a background of nothingness that evoked no curiosity. There was the house next door, there was the moon, there was night, there was the day, and so forth. Why not? With the utmost effort, that is all I can reconstruct of the world I saw before I began to read books and see pictures, go for walks, go to school, and inspect and inquire with the freedom of seven or eight years old. I have a fuller conception of what I was seeing after that stage. My imagination was being used to amplify and extend what I saw and heard and felt directly. A rather foggy time background was taking shape. I heard about once upon a time, before I existed. I had a jumbled idea of old England, mostly forests with turrets peeping out of them, old Paris, Rome, where it was always Nero and Christians fighting beasts in the Colosseum. My historical ideas centered upon Windsor Castle. I had seen Windsor Castle, and I firmly believed that the grandiose round tower which George the Fourth clapped upon it, was built by William the Conqueror. Rome, Greece, Babylon, Jerusalem, and Egypt arranged anyhow, crowded the background, and the creation, seen across the shining waters of the flood, and a curious procession of very, very, very old gentlemen, Methuselah beat the record, sealed up the vista of the past. I was interested in geography, chiefly because it provided varied scenery for imaginary adventures. I thought China and Japan were made to be laughed at, though their porcelain and silks and fans were clever. I knew that there were also savages for whom Britain provided missionaries and machine guns. Savages were generally cannibals and wore few or no garments, which seemed to me very rude of them indeed. I knew the world was round because everybody told me so. If they had told me the world was cone-shaped or flat, I should have known that with equal conviction. And it was only years afterwards that I realized how difficult it is to prove that the world is a globe. There were upper classes one respected, and lower classes that one didn't, and poor people had to work, and that was how things were. The nearer I could edge up to the upper classes, the better it would be for me. So I saw the world about the year 1880 when I was rising 14 years old, and I think most of my readers will agree with me that I was seeing the world then in a very distorted and foggy fashion. And yet, I was seeing it as most people in Great Britain were seeing it at the time. I was seeing it as a vast multitudes of people are seeing it today. I was seeing it as it was shown to me. For a score of years before that time, tremendous discoveries had been made about the past of the earth and about the origins of man. 
They were immensely important discoveries. They were a challenge to every idea about life commonly accepted at that time. Yet these fundamental discoveries had not been imparted to my parents, who were both intelligent, book-reading persons. My lay and religious teachers, poor men, bound in honor, you would have thought, to teach me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, gave me their stale old histories without a hint of the broadening knowledge of the time. I still wonder why they deceived me so. Mainly, I think, because they were too overworked and underpaid to keep up with the times. They couldn't tell me because they themselves had not been told about these revelations. They were the ignorant, self-satisfied transmitters of a dead tradition. Most of the books that came into my hands were books 10 or 20 years old, for in those days, just as now, no one, no education minister, for example, was pretending to dream of giving people contemporary knowledge. Even today, except for a few rare adventurous publishers, nobody in any country in the world is really bothering to secure mankind abundant, cheap new books. Cheap new books happen or don't happen according to the state of the market. Knowledge oozes about with cheap printing and paper and dries up when they dry up. Our English-speaking democracies, about which we boast so inordinately, are still grossly ignorant and misinformed. But I think the books we got in 1880 were more second-hand and out-of-date and shabbier than the stuff people get today. So by 1880, I saw my world pretty wrong by the higher standards of that time. I forget when it was I began to realize that the world as it had been presented to me was not a trustworthy picture of reality, that in effect I was being lied to about life. I began doubting quite early in life. The religion they put before me was queer, muddled stuff, metaphors about unfatherly fathers and sacrificial sons, blood offerings and blood-dripping sacrificial lambs. In suburban London, an irrational fall and a vindictive judgment, stuff that took refuge from any intelligent questions behind a screen of awe, mystery, and menace, so that my reason did not so much reject it as fail altogether to accept it. What they called morality seemed planned to thrust me into some nasty secret corners and leave me there. I had some bad times, fearing a god whom I felt but did not dare to think a spy a bully, a tyrant, and fundamentally insane. And it was only after terrific distresses and terrors that I achieved disbelief. Fear lingered in my mind long after definite faith had dissolved. The sublunary world they imposed upon me was equally difficult to accept. The history they taught me wound up at 1700, which was queer when one came to think about it. But even then I must have read books about the French Revolution and George Washington and the Roman Republic, and they had upset my simple faith in the inevitability of our political order, the dear Queen and all the rest of it. A sixpenny book by the late Henry George came into my hands and set me thinking crudely, destructively but profitable about rent, wages, and such like matters. Some rumors about a science called geology reached me. I'd already observed for myself in the pictures in Wood's Natural History that different species of animals had quite needless resemblances to one another, if it was indeed true that they all had been made separately. 
Then about the time my schoolmaster set me reading science textbooks to earn education department grants for him, and suddenly I woke up to the existence of a vast and growing world of thought and knowledge outside my ordinary circles of ideas altogether. My heavens opened, and the world as I had seen it hitherto became a flimsy veil upon the face of reality. I have heard other people who have had similar experiences to mine tell of the thirst for knowledge they experienced. I suppose I had that thirst in good measure, but far stronger was my anger at the paltry sham of an education that had been fobbed off upon me. Angry resentment also at the dismal negligence of the social and religious organizations responsible for me that had allowed me to be thrust into the hopeless drudgery of a shop, ignorant, misinformed, undernourished, and physically underdeveloped, without warning and without guidance, at the age of thirteen, to sink or swim. I was too young to make allowances for the people who were exploiting and stifling me. I did not realize that they were quite charming people, really, if a little too self-satisfied and indolent. I thought they had conspired to keep me down. It wasn't true that they had conspired to keep me down. But I was down, and they didn't bother. They took my inferiority as part of the accepted order. They just trod on me. But I did not discriminate about their responsibility. I hated them, as only the young can hate. And it gave me the energy to struggle, and I set about struggling for knowledge. I was bitterly determined to see my world clearer and truer before it was too late. To this day, I will confess I dislike the restriction and distortion of knowledge as I dislike nothing else on earth. In this modern world, it is, I hold, second only to murder to starve and cripple the mind of a child. Emasculation of the mind is surely more horrible than any degrading bodily mutilation. In our modern world, we recoil from the deliberate manufacture of human dwarfs, harem attendants and choristers, but the world still swarms with mental cripples who follow the laws of their own distortion and scarcely suspect they are distorted. I have indicated the limits of my world outlook in 1880. By extraordinarily good luck, I caught up to something like contemporary knowledge in the course of a few years. In seven years, before I was twenty-one, I contrived, never mind how, to secure four years of almost continuous study, and three of these were at the Royal College of Science, and one under the professorship of the great Huxley, Darwin's friend. And by 1887, the world as I saw it had become something altogether greater, deeper and finer than the confused picture I had of it in 1880. Mentally, we all travel at our fastest, I suppose, between 14 and 21. Many of my readers will know from their own experience what I mean when I say that for me these years remain in my memory as if all the time I was putting together an immense jigsaw puzzle in a mood of inspiration. These are the most exciting years of my life. I had been blind, and I was learning to see. The world opened up before me. By 88, I saw the world not precisely as I see it today, but much more as I see it today than as I saw it in 1880. There's been a lot of expansion and supplementing since, and nothing like a fundamental reconstruction. Now, how did we, because I was one of a generation of science students, how did we see the world in 88? Time had opened out for us, and the creation, the fall of man, and the flood 
those simple fundamentals of the Judeo-Christian mythology had vanished forever. Instead, I saw a limitless universe throughout which the stars and nebula were scattering like dust, and I saw life ascending, as it seemed, from nothingness towards stars. In the 80s, the prevailing ideas about space and time, matter, and energy were simpler than they are now. Space and time just went on forever, we thought. We students used to talk about the fourth and other dimensions, but when I wrote a story for the students' magazine and identified time with the fourth dimension, I thought I was being very original and paradoxical indeed. We also had very definitely limited ideas about the amount of energy latent in the universe, and it seemed to us that our world would probably freeze up in a few million years. Still, even that gave us a long time ahead, and we thought humanity might see and do tremendous things. We knew the broad outline of the history of life and time. We knew that our ancestors were apes, and it seemed possible that man would go on to a power and wisdom beyond all precedent. But our ideas of that progress we anticipated were remarkably restricted. Our imaginations were relatively unstimulated. For example, our world, as we saw it, knew nothing of radio, or to be exact, it knew of radio transmission as a curious laboratory experiment, the Hertzian waves, and its ideas about atoms and the statement of physical processes were naive in the extreme. We doubted if aviation was possible. We doubted if electric traction was possible. We associated submarines with the fantasies of Jules Verne and we considered his around the world in 80 days an extravagant dream. Our interpretation of mental actions was trivial and shallow, almost beyond comparison with what we have now. As I compare the world as I see it now with that world I contemplated 50 years ago, I realize how greatly the picture has unfolded and how much understanding has intensified. So far as its scale and texture go, so far as space and time, the atoms and the threads and substance of the picture go, the world as I see it today is altogether more marvelous, mysterious, and profound. It is not only that our analysis of the rhythms and interplay of the physical elements of the universe has been elaborated and rephrased in far more effective modes. In the foreground and middle distance also, concerning affairs upon this planet and the more obvious and immediate activities of life, our enlightenment has been immense. Thanks largely to Freud and his disciples and successors, there has been an immense advance in our self-knowledge. I would put Freud side by side with Darwin as a significant figure in human enlightenment. These two men are cardinal not so much on account of the actual elucidations they produced, but because of the questions they asked and the method of their questioning. Our knowledge, first of our own motives and impulses, and then of mass thought and mass action, has become beyond comparison more lucid and practical, thanks primarily to the initiatives of Freud. One immediate result of this rapid progressive enlargement and confirmation of our former outlook has been a tremendous wave of optimistic assurance in the minds of liberal-minded, freely-thinking people. They have taken progress in discovery, an intelligent social organization, in the conquest of want, disease, ignorance, as something almost as inevitable as the precession of the equinoxes. 
that progress has had the air of something quite independent of the daily lives and mass responses of everyday people. There was nothing anyone need to do about it. It came, it unfolded, it increased progress. The men of science, the inventors, clever people somewhere were doing it all for us, and all we had to do was to sit back and marvel and accept the cornucopia. There are the facts before us, the novelties, the triumphs perpetually reinforced. In the world as I see it today, the powers and possibilities of human effort appear enormously greater than they did in 1888, and they still increase. Still, the prospect and the promise expand. The case for optimism about physical wants is stronger now than ever. So far as economic circumstances go, the world could be organized to provide every living soul upon it with abundant food, housing, and leisure, and that without either direct compulsion to toil or any irksome monotony of employment. We have passed in a single lifetime from a general neediness to a practicable plenty for all. The story is too familiar to need exhaustive recapitulation here. Aviation and radio communication have abolished distance. In 1888, the unity of the world as one community was a remote aspiration. Now it has become an imperative necessity. Fifty years ago, none of us dreamt of the freedom and fullness of life that is now a plain possibility for everyone. To many hopeful people in the past few decades, an age of power, freedom, and abundance has seemed close at hand. I has not seen nor ear heard. It is only now entering into the human imagination to conceive the wonder of the years to come. And now, suddenly, we are confronted by a series of distresses and disasters. Of a nature to convince the most hopeful of us that all this happy assurance was premature. We anticipated too easily, too greedily, and too uncritically. These new powers, inventions, contrivances, and methods are not the unqualified enrichment of normal life that we expected. They are hurting, injuring, and frustrating us increasingly. They are proving dangerous and devastating in our eager but unprepared hands. We are only beginning to realize that the cornucopia of innovation may perhaps prove far more dangerous than benevolent. What we may call the scientific world has recognized this quite recently. There have been great stirrings of conscience in various scientific organizations upon the question of the misuse of science and invention, and how far the man of science may be held responsible for that misuse. The associations for the advancement of science in Britain, America, and Australia have been moving under the initiatives of such men as Sir Frederick Gowland Hopkins, Lord Rutherford, and Sir Richard Gregory. The British Association has created a special division, not merely a new section, but a sort of collateral to itself, for the study of the social relations of science. The fate of this division will be of considerable interest from our point of view. I've been privileged to attend some of its deliberations, and two divergent lines of tendency have been very evident. One is plainly to organize and implement the common creative impulse in the scientific mind so as to make it a vital factor in public opinion. That was the original impulse which evoked the division, 
The other is to restrain any such development of an authoritative and perhaps embarrassing criticism of the conduct of public affairs, and to keep the man of science modestly to his present subordination. It would carry us too far afield to discuss here how far the consciences of men of science may be able to get the upper hand of a trained and experienced governing class, so as to insist upon such collective ideals as they are able to formulate, and how far a trained and experienced governing class may maneuver this medley of distressed and protesting intelligences into a position of roster of mere experts available if called upon by the authorities and otherwise out of consideration. The odds seem to me to be in favor of the latter possibility. It is conceivable that the scientific worker is even now walking into a net, that increasing ideas of his inquiries and experiments are falling under the restrictions of official secrets, and that far beyond the more obvious realms of physics and chemistry, fields of investigation that have no direct bearing upon warfare are likely to come under control as favoring subversive ideas undermining the military morale of the community. In Nazi Germany, this has happened already to psychological science, to mathematical physics and ethnology, matters quite outside armament and strategy. An almost complete strangulation of the unhampered publication and exchanges of the free scientific period is visibly within the range of contemporary possibility. In the world of scientific workers, as we know them, even with that division to rally them, appears a feeble folk to resist the influences making for that extinction. No one has ever explored the bases of intellectual freedom in the modern community, and they may prove to be far more flimsy than the intellectual worker flinging his mind about in the apparent security of his study, imagines. It's not simply the forcible misuse of purely mechanical inventions that is producing such frightening retrogressions of those brave, free hopes that culminated in the later 20s. Every fresh development of radio, of the film, and mass information generally, and all the new educational devices to which we had looked for the rapid spread of enlightenment and a common world understanding, being subordinated more and more to government restriction and the service of propaganda. They were to have been the artillery of progress. They are rapidly being turned against our mental freedoms with increasing effectiveness. Plainly, it is high time we look more closely into the cause of these disconcerting frustrations of our recent large bright anticipations of a world of plenty and expansion. What is the real position of Homo sapiens in relation to his environment? Has he the mastery we assumed he had, or did he make a profound miscalculation of his outlook? Have we been indulging in hopeful assumptions rather than facing the realities of his case? Upon that question, the subsequent summary concentrates. 1. Preliminary Statement since the day when Herbert Spencer launched the word sociology upon the world, the study of the general question of what is happening to mankind has made great advances. Sociology, or to give it a more recent and better name, human ecology, has become a real science. Analyzing operating causes and forecasting events, 
Our awareness of our circumstances is altogether more lucid than the world outlook, even of our fathers. We have flowing into the problem of human society a continually more acute analysis of its population movements, of its economic processes, of the relation of its activities to the actual resources available. We no longer talk with quite the same pompous ignorance as the history teachers of our youth of the rise and decay of empires and of the march of civilization from east to west, or from west to east, it is much the same. And such like plausible caricatures of the currents of events. With the increase in our knowledge and understanding, quite new conceptions of these prospects and problems of humanity unfold before us. The inflation of biological ideas into sociology and human history it has to be recognized, is a process still only beginning. The enlightenment of the middle 19th century, through the destructive analysis of the creation myth, went on in the face of vast resistances, and not the least of these were in the schools. The new conceptions threatened the very basis of belief on which right conduct seemed to rest. Men shrank from following out the plain implications of the new discoveries. And so either they were denied irrationally and frantically, or they were minimized. They were admitted, yes, but as obscure, remote matters that had little or no significance in the broader issues of life. So that they could be taught in a sterilized form or ignored altogether. There was a period of controversy, very disastrous to the old dogmas, and then a phase of defensive silences. Open fighting was abandoned, and the established beliefs dug themselves in. It is still possible for bright youngsters at the universities to enter upon the advanced study of history, philosophy, and economics in the blackest ignorance of general biology. The majority of them remain in that ignorance, with a deepening scholastic hostility to the science, which sits like a neglected creditor at their doors. They have established a social prejudice against this dreaded line of thought and body of knowledge in which they have no share. They succeed in putting it upon the all-too-snobbish and sensitive young that somehow the biological reference is not quite the thing. It isn't done. It isn't to be thought about. There is an indecency in it. The young university philosopher, historian, or economist is in many cases not so much biologically ignorant as biology-proofed. It is because of such mental gaps and barriers that it is necessary to recapitulate here certain facts about life, which altogether they are matters of general knowledge today beyond question and almost beyond cavil might nevertheless, so far as any effective realization of their bearing upon our general social, political, and religious behavior goes, to be totally unknown. Yet they bear upon the problems of the present urgently. Contemporary political discussion remains indeed more maundering empiricism, a tissue of guesses, ill-founded assertions, and gossip, until they are brought into court. This contrast of established knowledge and its effective application is a very remarkable one. Men can know a thing and yet know it quite ineffectively if it contradicts the general traditions and habits in which they live. It is well to understand that at this stage in our analysis, 
because it bears very directly upon the review of human possibilities to which this summary is directed. 2. Biology Invades History One of the most striking differences between the outlook of our grandparents and that of a modern intelligence today is the modification of time values that has occurred. By the measure of our knowledge, their time scale was extremely shallow. They had scarcely any historical perspective at all. They looked back to a past of a few thousand years, and at the very beginning of time as they conceived it, they saw human life very much as it is now. It was a more or less balanced system of certain social types. Rulers and ruled, hunter and cultivator, priest and soldier. This they regarded as the immemorial life of man. They saw the life of city and cultivated land, desert and sea, throughout all the intervals, spreading perhaps, changing in a few particulars, enriched rather than altered by inventions and discoveries, but essentially the same. Their range of observation and comparison was too limited for them to realize that by clearing forests, overstocking grasslands, destroying soil, they were slowly impoverishing and devastating many of the regions into which they spread. They did not connect the rise and fall of empires with a factor of unforeseeing waste in that normal life of theirs. They ascribed such drifting of population and energy as they observed to other causes. These processes of primitive waste were too relatively slow to be perceptible from lifetime to lifetime. So these thinkers of yesterday talked of unchanging human nature. You cannot change human nature, they said. They relied upon the fabled promise of the rainbow. They had it straight from the Creator's mouth, that while the earth still remained, seed time and harvest should endure. The order of events seemed a sure, unfailing routine. And in much the same way, our ancestors, until a couple of dozen centuries ago, thought the world was flat. They thought the sea they sailed upon flat without qualification, and it required a considerable amount of mental exercise for them to realize that the apparent plane of the ocean surface was really curved, and then the faster and farther they sailed, the more effectively they would realize how the round earth was falling away from their first assumptions. All their old landmarks would then vanish one after another. Astounded navigators found unfamiliar constellations in the heavens. Within two dozen centuries, man has been discovering that he lives not on a flat earth, but upon a globe. And within the last ten, that he is not the center of the universe, but a denizen of a very second-rate planet. He has had to readjust his general ideas about life to that and to a certain extent he has adjusted them, to a certain extent only. And similarly, our historical imaginations, quite as much as our geographical imaginations, live today in a vastly enlarged system of perspectives. We know that the everlasting hills are not everlasting, that all our working conceptions of behavior and destiny are provisional, and that human nature and everything about it is being carried along upon an irreversible process of change. Our historical ideas reach back now through vistas of millions of years. We see humanity emerging from subhuman conditions, 
from the life of relatively solitary apes at distances in the nature of a quarter of a million years. We know with increasing precision of the onset of a social hunting life in those distant ages. We are able to trace the beginnings of agriculture in a period of two or three hundred centuries. And by the new scale, the development of cities, language, law, religious organization, and all the various adaptations of humanity to the new conditions of a regular food supply, all that social system which seemed as eternal as the heavens, appear now events of yesterday, devoid of any finality whatsoever. That fixity of the normal human life which our great-grandfathers assumed as a matter of plain common sense, we discover, was a transient dream. As our perspectives open, it vanishes. The rapid progress of social psychology, human ecology, and all the ill-defined activities of human and general biology is opening our eyes. It is opening even the eyes of our trained historians and our social teachers to the real nature of our everyday social life. It is brought home to us that the human species for the last 20 or 25,000 years has been living in such a continuously accelerating process of change as no other animal species has ever been called upon to face. And it is also being forced upon our reluctant attention that the species Homo sapiens is no privileged exception to the general conditions that determine the destinies of other living species. It prospers or suffers under the same laws. These laws can be stated compactly, and there is nowadays very little dispute about them, even in matters of detail. 2. Biology Invades History One of the most striking differences between the outlook of our grandparents and that of a modern intelligence today is the modification of time values that has occurred. By the measure of our knowledge, their time scale was extremely shallow. They had scarcely any historical perspective at all. They looked back to a past of a few thousand years, and at the very beginning of time as they conceived it, they saw human life very much as it is now. It was a more or less balanced system of certain social types. Rulers and ruled, hunter and cultivator, priest and soldier. This they regarded as the immemorial life of man. They saw the life of city and cultivated land, desert and sea, throughout all the intervals, spreading perhaps, changing in a few particulars, enriched rather than altered by inventions and discoveries, but essentially the same. Their range of observation and comparison was too limited for them to realize that by clearing forests, overstocking grasslands, destroying soil, they were slowly impoverishing and devastating many of the regions into which they spread. They did not connect the rise and fall of empires with a factor of unforeseeing waste in that normal life of theirs. They ascribed such drifting of population and energy as they observed to other causes. These processes of primitive waste were too relatively slow to be perceptible from lifetime to lifetime. So these thinkers of yesterday talked of unchanging human nature. You cannot change human nature, they said. They relied upon the fabled promise of the rainbow. They had it straight from the Creator's mouth, that while the earth still remained, 
seed time and harvest should endure. The order of events seemed a sure, unfailing routine. And in much the same way, our ancestors, until a couple of dozen centuries ago, thought the world was flat. They thought the sea they sailed upon flat without qualification, and it required a considerable amount of mental exercise for them to realize that the apparent plane of the ocean surface was really curved, and then the faster and farther they sailed, the more effectively they would realize how the round earth was falling away from their first assumptions. All their old landmarks would then vanish one after another. Astounded navigators found unfamiliar constellations in the heavens. Within two dozen centuries, man has been discovering that he lives not on a flat earth, but upon a globe. And within the last ten, that he is not the center of the universe, but a denizen of a very second-rate planet. He has had to readjust his general ideas about life to that. And to a certain extent, he has adjusted them. To a certain extent only. And similarly, our historical imaginations, quite as much as our geographical imaginations, live today in a vastly enlarged system of perspectives. We know that the everlasting hills are not everlasting, that all our working conceptions of behavior and destiny are provisional, and that human nature and everything about it is being carried along upon an irreversible process of change. Our historical ideas reach back now through vistas of millions of years. We see humanity emerging from subhuman conditions, from the life of relatively solitary apes at distances in the nature of a quarter of a million years. We know with increasing precision of the onset of a social hunting life in those distant ages. We are able to trace the beginnings of agriculture in a period of two or three hundred centuries and by the new scale, the development of cities, language, law, religious organization, and all the various adaptations of humanity to the new conditions of a regular food supply, all that social system which seemed as eternal as the heavens, appear now events of yesterday, devoid of any finality whatsoever. That fixity of the normal human life which our great-grandfathers assumed as a matter of plain common sense we discover was a transient dream. As our perspectives open, it vanishes. The rapid progress of social psychology, human ecology, and all the ill-defined activities of human and general biology is opening our eyes. It is opening even the eyes of our trained historians and our social teachers to the real nature of our everyday social life. It is brought home to us that the human species for the last 20 or 25,000 years has been living in such a continuously accelerating process of change as no other animal species has ever been called upon to face. And it is also being forced upon our reluctant attention that the species Homo sapiens is no privileged exception to the general conditions that determine the destinies of other living species. It prospers or suffers under the same laws. These laws can be stated compactly, and there is nowadays very little dispute about them, even in matters of detail. 3. How Species Survive What in general terms are the relations of a species to the world about it? 
species may be living in practical harmony with its environment, or it may be more or less out of balance with its surroundings. In the former case, it may continue recognizably the same species, living the same life age after age. Any tendency to excessive numbers may be corrected by a correlated increase in the types that prey upon it. And there will be no definite biological encouragement for such variations and mutations as occur. Harmless mutations may indeed produce varieties and subspecies, and as Henry Fairfield Osborne long ago pointed out, there may be purely mutational efflorescences. The correlation of a species to its environment is never hard and exact, but only a minority of mutations seem to be without some quality of advantage or disadvantage. Abnormal individuals in a species in practical equilibrium will generally be eliminated, and the species as a whole will pursue the even tenor of its way indefinitely. There are species that have been under no necessity to adjust themselves to circumstances over vast periods of geological time, but they are exceptions to the general ecological spectacle of species balancing themselves in a changing world. Most existing species, when their affairs are scrutinized as a whole, are discovered to be in a state of imperfect adjustment to their circumstances, and to be either undergoing adaptation to meet new requirements or to be losing ground in the struggle, if one may call anything so essentially passive a struggle to survive. Over a large part of the animal and vegetable kingdoms, Adaptation, the working adjustment of the species under stress, is made, if it is made at all, by the selective frustration and killing off of less well-adjusted individuals. Variations and mutations, it is not necessary to enter here into the controversial question of their causes, suffice it that they occur. Variations and mutations, indifferent, favorable and unfavorable, play a considerable part in this selective adjustment. The adjustment is either sufficient or insufficient. In the latter case, the species dwindles and disappears. In the former, the species undergoes modification. It survives, changed, as a new species or as several new species according to the imperatives of its altered conditions. All this again is practically common knowledge today. Most educated people know about it, even if they do not think very much about it, or link it up with other systems of ideas in their minds. It needs to be repeated plainly here in view of that possibility of disregard. The general history of life in the past is, as everybody knows, one of failure and defeat rather than adaptation. Great groups of living things have arisen, had their heyday, and then passed altogether from the scene giving place to more plastic and adaptable forms of life. Comparatively insignificant forms with novel accommodations arise to take their place. When we contemplate that greater past that science has unfolded for us, we see great groups and orders of mighty creatures dominating the earth, enormous reptiles, huge mammals flourishing and then waning and passing away. They have not kept pace with change. Their exuberance has been almost a defiance of change, and change has overcome and obliterated them. 
the geological record can be presented, certain assumptions being granted, as on the whole, a great progression. But that does not alter the fact that it is also a history of the ruthless extinction of whole species, genera, and orders of living things. There are tremendous massacres in the geological record. One of the greatest of these occurred at the close of the Mesozoic period when in the course of perhaps only a few hundred thousand years of vast reptilian fauna, ichthyosaurus, plesiosaurus, tyrannosaurus, and so forth, an equally wonderful flora, scores of genera, of ammonites, and so on and so forth, were thrust out of existence. We know little or nothing of the changes that made so many hitherto successful forms of life impossible. We know surely only that they occurred. A change from conditions of all year the round equable temperature to wide seasonal alternations of heat and cold may have resulted from some planetary disturbance. More recently, there have been parallel massacres of groups of the early mammals, and there can be no question that today we are, from the geological point of view, living in a phase of exceptional climactic instability in a series of glacial and interglacial ages, and witnessing another destruction of animal and plant species on an almost unparalleled scale. The list of species extinguished in the past hundred years is a long one. The list of species threatened with extinction today is still longer. No new species arises to replace those exterminated. It is a swift, distressful impoverishment of life that is now going on. And this time, the biologist notes a swifter and stranger agent of change than any phase of the fossil past can show. Man, who will leave nothing undisturbed from the ocean bottom to the stratosphere, and who bids fair to extinguish himself in the process. This species man is, as we all know, one of a great series of species which we can speak of roughly as cerebral animals. These are the mammals who have dominated the earth since the beginning of the tertiary period and which displayed throughout a rapid development of the cerebral cortex. This cerebral cortex was a novelty in the history of life, and it brought with it a fresh, distinctive method of individual adaptation to special circumstances. It quickened the response of a species to changing conditions very greatly. Learning from experience appears indeed but very rudimentarily in cold-blooded vertebrata. It is only in the birds and mammals, and particularly in the latter, that it becomes of real importance in adaptation. Essentially, the cerebrum is an organ for the storage and application of memories. It enables individuals to learn by experience. The history of the mammals, in particular, is a history of memory development. All through the tertiary period, it is to be noted, brains in every group of mammals increase in relative size and complexity. With every increase, the power of learning from experience and of supplementing direct impulse by conditioned reflexes increases. A young fish or reptile comes into the world with a practically complete, almost unalterable set of instinctive responses. It survives or fails by its inherited outfit. Apparently, it can learn to a certain extent, but it learns very little. A young mammal comes into life far less conclusively equipped. A tabula rasa, prepared to learn. It learns. 
and the ampler its cerebral equipment, the more it learns to take care of itself. To begin with, it is sillier and less certain than the cold-blooded type. It stands in need of protection. In the end, it is far better adapted to meet the special conditions it faces. Moreover, the young mammal, and to a rather different extent, in a rather different fashion, the young bird do not simply learn from individual experience. Generally speaking, there is also a protective relationship between the parent and the new individual. By example, and often by direct intervention, the young individual is taught, it heeds and imitates. As we ascend the scale of cerebral development, the possibility of teaching increases. It becomes possible to domesticate and train these higher brain animals in just the measure that their brains are developed. You can teach very little to a fish or a reptile. But directly you come to the higher cerebral mammals, you are confronted by the new possibility of establishing an artificial, taught, motive system to control, supplement, or altogether replace natural instinct. You must catch them young. Then you can socialize them and get to quite remarkable working understandings with them. The shepherd's dog, the blind man's dog, the polo pony, the polite house-trained cat are examples of the immense individual adaptability which is achieved through the establishment of a taut, secondary self in the cerebral cortex. None of these creatures are behaving in accordance with the primary tendencies they have inherited. They're behaving in accordance with an adaptive mental superstructure imposed upon their natural dispositions. It enables them to survive not simply as tolerated, but as contributing individuals in a complex social organization which otherwise would have had no alternative but their extermination. They would have suffered the fate that is overtaking the unteachable Tasmanian devil or the unteachable Tasmanian wolf. 5. Union Now? Is it possible for man to recover control, or is this shattering return to destructive violence the beginning of the end of the career of Homo sapiens? Let us hold firmly to the broad conception of ecological science that have brought us this far. The human species is, as a whole, dangerously out of harmony with these new conditions. Either its power of adaptation will be sufficient to readjust it to the new demands, and it will go on to a new phase of survival. Or, like any other living species, it will be defeated, shattered, and ultimately wiped out. There are no other possibilities. There is no time for any of the slower and more ancient methods of adaptation. The readjustment needed must be a mental readjustment. In that alone is there any hope for mankind. In view of what has gone before, it is plain that the mental readjustment must involve three main essentials. In varying measure, these essentials are already widely recognized. First, and most obviously, the idea and tradition of war must be eliminated. For that, quite a large number of people seem to be more or less prepared. They desire it, even if they have yet to discover the price that must be paid for it. Secondly, and what is not nearly so widely conceded, the vast and violent wastage of natural resources in the hunt for private profit that went on during the 19th century must be arrested and reversed by the establishment of a collective economy for the whole world. 
And thirdly, in view of the stress of those young people, the resultant world organization must be of an active, progressive, imaginatively exciting nature. That surplus energy of youth, male and female, must be used up. It is the drive and essence of life. It is life itself. It must in each generation be getting on. It must be doing things, making or remaking with an effect of conquest and general participation. The earlier years were preparation. The later, relieved of the high fever and impatience of that onset of vitality, are appreciation, deliberation, and the continual broadening out of the human agenda. These three propositions, peace, collectivism, and incessant new enterprise, are interdependent and practically inseparable. One cannot be realized without the other two. In stating these propositions, we are not in any way laying down the law. The law is in the nature of things. We are merely stating as precisely as possible the unconditional terms that our race manifestly has to expect. To what extent is contemporary thought and education moving towards the abolition of war? An increasing number of us are realizing that the age of independent sovereign states and empires throughout the world, free to make war and prepared to make war, each separated from the other by barriers of language, religion, historical delusions, and those differences in habits of life which are called national cultures, is coming to an end, obviously, rapidly. And at present, not one of us can say with any confidence what sort of world order can replace it. A world order we feel there must be, but as to how it is to be attained, we are all at sixes and sevens. The world of man has to become, has, in a chaotic disorder of conflict, already become one community, one disorderly community. In the days of Oliver Goldsmith, what happened in China happened in China, and did not matter a rap to anyone in England. If every time one fired a gun in England, he remarked, a man died in China, nobody would mind in the least. The shooting would go on. Now what happens in China happens everywhere in the world. That is to say, it is known and affects like everywhere. The crude fact of the worldwide community is here now. The open questions arise when we consider how this inevitable coming together of our communities can and will be recognized and established as a world order. We have indeed already seen one attempt to reconstitute human affairs so as to eliminate this destructive process of modern war in the League of Nations experiment that we realize now was an extremely naive attempt to stop the current of history and to preserve forever just those national separatisms and strangulating boundaries against which the stars in their courses are fighting. Certain minimum changes were made to end war while everything else was to go on just as it had been going on before. Sovereign states, organized essentially for defense and aggression, were to form a league to end combat. Simply that. The conception of an organized world pax, after it had played its part in the warfare of propaganda, after it had been used to build up false expectations of a new start in life for the German people, was taken over at Versailles and translated into the ideology of foreign offices and the diplomatic services. These essential organs of the old regime were instructed to supersede themselves, and they were left to work out the task, and quite naturally they did nothing of the sort. 
The League Covenant completely disregarded that perennial problem of the restless young man, and it gave no attention to the absolute necessity of reconstructing economic life upon a collectivist basis throughout the world. These are matters about which diplomacy has never concerned itself. They do not enter into diplomatic or political education, which is at least the better part of a century out of date. At the end of less than a score of years, the failure of the League of Nations experiment is complete, and we will spend no time on enlarging upon that fruitless interlude of half-hearted idealism. Suffice it to say that for many excellent minds, it has blocked the way to a realistic treatment of the human problem for two decades. We find now, in 1939, a rough reproduction of the world situation of 1914-18. to 18. We find three aggressive military states threatening the whole world. And we find a number of threatened states contemplating some sort of loosely organized resistance to that aggression. How loosely, with what dangerous looseness, that organization is still contemplated is illustrated by a book that has been recently given quite serious attention in Britain and America. This is Union Now by Clarence K. Street. He proposes that right now there shall be a federal union of 15 now independent states, which he describes as democracies. They are the United States of America, the British Group, Finland, France, Holland, Belgium, Switzerland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. It is not a league or a war alliance, he proposes, but a permanent federation on the American model, with a common foreign policy, common money, common armed forces, common control of interstate and foreign trade, and a common citizenship. He sweeps aside such questions as the status of India, colonial possessions, the various monarchist traditions involved as secondary questions. Soviet Russia, he balances on the brim of his project with a query. On the whole, an encouraging query. Apparently, the federated democracies are to have great local economic autonomy within the limits of the federal constitution. Before we look into Mr. Street's proposals more closely, it will be worthwhile to get this loose word democracy defined. The special interest of this book here lies in the fact that it has been well received by a considerable number of considerable people. It is an intimation of how rapidly opinion is moving towards the conception of a new world order transcending existing boundaries. So far it is a book to be welcomed. But it is also an indication of the extreme vagueness still prevalent about the necessary material and mental conditions of such a world order. Its pseudo-practical short-sightedness is almost as manifest as the boldness of its intention. I do not believe that a world order can come into existence without a preliminary mental cosmopolis. I may be mistaken in that. Political federation, loose and confused at first, may precede and impose the necessary mental adaptations. This is too roundabout and slow a process for the limitations of my imagination. World democracy, I believe, would get lost on the way. 6. What is democracy? Since at any time now we may find ourselves fighting, enduring, and dying for democracy, it seems worthwhile to ask for some clear definition of what democracy means. 
so that we shall not only fight for it, but be prepared to see that in the end we get it. When you question people closely in the matter, you will encounter a considerable variety of answers, but you will find as you sort them out and arrange them that they do tend to converge and point in a common direction. There is a vital intention beneath the endless misuses and perversions of the word. Towards what do these diverse statements converge? What is the reality, implicit and potential, that gives its living, present appeal to the word democracy? Two words that will come out very frequently in the definitions that are given you are freedom and liberty. Frequent, but not quite so frequent, are such phrases as the right of individuals and communities to self-government. A few people will make a vote the symbol of democracy. But all of them can be brought into agreement that democracy means the subordination of the state to the ends and welfare of the common individual. Very prevalent is an attitude of negation. Democracy, it is declared, is an anti-movement. It demands the protection of the individual life from the state. It is an anti-fascist, anti-Nazi, anti-communist, anti-war, since there is no liberty in a state of siege. It is the denial of the right of the state organization to interfere in the life of the common individual, except for the common convenience and with the common consent. All this is a matter of general agreement, but in all these phrases there is an element of idealistic overstatement, and as soon as we attempt to bring them into effective contact with the realities of life, we find ourselves involved in some of the standing controversies that have exercised humanity since human thought and discussion began. We are reminded that there is no such thing as absolute freedom or absolute servitude. Limitless freedom, anarchy, would be a world of chaotic conduct ruled only by impulse, a jungle life. All freedom in any society is conditional. It is a compromise. It implies rules of the game, that is to say, law. Behind all actual social behavior, there is the suggestion of a defined give and take, a social contract. The social contract may vary between the extremes of a contract of blind obedience on the one hand and a contract to undertake no collective action whatever without a plebiscite, an entirely impracticable subordination of the law to mass impulse on the other. Between these extremes and with a declared bias for conscious free individual action wherever it is practicable, this democracy falls. Now, the desire for conscious, free, individual action is innate in the normal human being, but it can be inhibited by fear of known or unknown consequences, by indolence and following the drift, and by a complex of infantile dispositions to imitate and obey. The herd instinct is very strong in the immature human animal. It will follow a leader or stampede like a cow and find great relief from perplexity in doing so. The pre-preference of democracy for the practical maximum of conscious, free individual action requires a justification beyond the mere faltering desire in our hearts to stand up, look heaven in the face, and be a man. For the normal man, unrestrained democracy is a very exacting way of living indeed. It asks too much of his natural resources. 
In a thousand situations, even a wise or able man may find himself unable to decide upon the line of action that is fairly the best for himself and also the best for the general good. And in ten thousand, he will find a fatal delay in his decisions. For that reason, a detailed, comprehensive, agreed-upon, accessible, and understandable system of laws, which are really rules for behavior in pre-digested situations, is a necessary preliminary condition for a modern democracy. A taxicab tariff or the rule of the road or a minimum wage is a convenient elementary instance of the way in which conscious, free individual action is set aside to the general benefit in a modern democratic community. We extend that principle nowadays to rates of interest and inordinate profits, to the acquisition of land and many forms of property, and to an increasing number of ordinary transactions. Our modern democratic community would frustrate its own declared aims without a complete, detailed legal framework enforced by a judiciary and a police acting strictly under the law. The man who is in a breath will say, I am a Democrat, and also I am a rebel, is simply a fool. The contrast between democracy and other forms of community with which it is generally contrasted lies essentially in this reliance upon law. In a democracy, a man does or should know, or should be easily able to ascertain exactly where he stands, what he must do, what he may do, what cannot be done and he should be able to say with the utmost confidence, you be damned to any illegal order or request. The laws that restrain and protect him have received his implicit or expressed consent, and he has a reasonable right to attempt to alter them if he finds them uncongenial. But until they are altered, they must be respected by all, small or great in the community. The president or ruling assembly is as much bound by the law as the meanest citizen. On the other hand, the dictatorships and undemocratic social organizations generally subject a large part of the common man's activities to uncovenanted restrictions, interference, and compulsion. It is plainly contrary to the spirit of democracy that a man should sell himself into slavery or bind himself indefinitely to unquestioning obedience. The care of democracy for freedom extends to the protection of a man from his own desperate necessity. No democracy would tolerate Esau's bargain. Most existing dictatorships indeed claim a sort of legality based upon some forced plebiscite, some snatched election. But your inquiries will make it plain that the consents of the governed in a democracy can never be finally silenced and irrevocable consent. It must be a continuing consent. It must be subject to sustained revision and renewal. From the point of view of democracy, all absolutisms are illegal, and resistance to their commands is as justifiable as resistance to any less general hold-up or act of violence. This fundamental legalism of democracy has been and is a deterrent to swift collective action. And the history of human government is very largely a history of attempts to reconcile the bickering gradualism of legal and deliberative government under democratic conditions with the needs of special emergencies. Before flood, fire, pestilence, earthquake, war, and especially in war, 
Men have had to relinquish their liberty of individual action more or less completely to a higher command of some sort with unqualified immediate powers. The original dictators of the Roman system were essentially legal officials, and one of the primary riddles of human society has been the resumption of power by the community at the end of a period of crisis. A democracy needs to be in a state of perpetual vigilance against the specialist. From Caesar to Stalin, democracy has been trapped into a one-man tyranny by crisis. But historical analogies are always misleading. And modern crises become more and more elaborate affairs and less and less controllable by single individuals. None of these modern dictatorships have yet been tried out in a sustained war. It is at least highly doubtful whether the vast communities of today, if they are able to develop a class of competent public servants with a cooperative morale and a sense of public criticism, may not attain an efficiency and a toughness far beyond that of a system subjected to the freaks and inspirations of a single individual. But they must work in the light. They must work with the distinctive freedom and the conscious individual cooperation of a team of football players. And they must be subjected to the continual criticism of an understanding public opinion with an unlimited freedom of expression and with an ultimate, if deferred, right of intervention. This conception of the superior flexibility and efficiency of free teamwork, as against dictatorially planned work, is very attractive to the democratically minded, but it may easily be exaggerated. For example, Tom Winteringham and his English captain lays great stress on the technical superiority of free men. Inspired by a common idea over the conscript soldiers of a dictatorship, he was in the fortunate position of leading a battalion of English volunteers, exceptionally intelligent and enthusiastic, picked men who wanted to fight, who were keen to fight, and unanimous at least in their hostility to the Franco pronunciamento. Such individuals, unanimous for the services that engage them, an enlightened democracy should no doubt consist. But when one turns to the story of Major Jose Martin Blasquez, tells in I Helped to Build an Army, of the internal struggles and indiscipline of defenders of the Republic, one realizes that practical freedom of initiative may achieve the most disastrous confusion. There is indeed no guarantee of either immediate or ultimate victory in democracy. In that, we must insist. There is no inherent magic successfulness in democratic freedom. Democratic freedom may be much more vulnerable than slavery, less easy both to attain and maintain. It may be that few or none of us realize yet the full price that may have to be paid for it. Nonetheless, it is only through the attainment of a real-world democracy that there is any hope for the ultimate survival of our species. In many of the replies one will receive to the demand for a clear definition of democracy, one will get some reference to that magnificent outbreak of the common sense of mankind, the first French Revolution, that remains still a cardinal event in the history of human liberation. It was not the beginning of liberation, but it was its most outstanding assertion. The democracy of America, the radicalism of Britain in its most vigorous phase, derived plainly from that French initiative. 
And since in those days titles and privileges were the most conspicuous infringements of men's liberties, democracy from the outset would have none of them. It was egalitarian without qualification. It was Republican. It denied and repudiated any form of class rule whatever. And whenever it is still in health, it remains Republican and egalitarian. But conditions in 18th century France were peculiar in the fact that then the conspicuous offense against human liberty was class privilege. For many people in those days, the possession of private property was a means of independence. Freedom of ownership seemed a reasonable provision for democratic liberty. And only a few realized that, released from class tyranny, the free play of proprietorship might create advantages and disadvantages, as wide and socially wasteful, as subject to abuses, as the class privileges of the older regime. Throughout the first revolutionary period, the spirit of democracy found itself puzzled, mocked, and frustrated by economic inequality. Men freed from the tyranny of privileges found themselves oppressed by a tyranny of advantages. The common man, theoretically free and independent, discovered himself in the grip of an expanding economic system that made free competitive employment only another form, to many it seems a scarcely preferable form, of serfdom. Political equality by itself proved in practice to be no equality at all. Accordingly, when we pursue our inquiries into the meaning of democracy today, we find a definite cleavage from this point onward in the replies to the question of what is democracy. An increasing number will be forced to agree that collective economic controls, industrial democracy, as Beatrice Webb first phrased it very happily, in her study of cooperation, 1891, constitute a necessary completion of the democratic proposition. A dwindling minority clings to the private profit system as the logical method of the sturdy individualism of the revolution. But the general implication of modern democracy is that unrestrained economic advantage can be an even graver infringement of human liberty than privilege. Modern democracy is not only legalism and egalitarianism, it is socialism. It sets its face against all abuse of the advantages of ownership. Democracy is socialism, and also, by a natural extension of its egalitarianism, as the problem of world law becomes urgent, it is cosmopolitan. Almost tacitly, democracy has accepted and assimilated the necessity that law must be world law and equally protective of every individual human being. So far as cosmopolitanism goes, modern democracy reverts to far older revolts of human common sense against racial, national, and class distinctions. Since the rise of Buddhism, there has been hardly any broad religious initiative that has not at least paid lip service to this idea, which, in Christianity, for example, is incorporated in the formula of an impartial divine fatherhood and an equal brotherhood of man. In the outline of history, the association of cosmopolitanism with theocrasia and the appearance of the syncretic universal religions is traced. There was a double impulse from below and from above. 
The desire of the expanding empires to fuse local particularisms into a larger order under the god-emperor was in accordance with the craving of normal common sense to escape from the irksomeness of obviously artificial estrangements. Dr. T.J. Harhoff, quoting W.W. Tarn's Alexander and the Unity of Mankind, declares that Alexander was the pioneer of the work of supreme revolutions in the world outlook, the first man known to us who contemplated the brotherhood of man or the unity of mankind. This is an exaggeration of a significant fact. Cosmopolitanism, universal brotherhood, has indeed been appearing and reappearing in human thought for at least the past four and twenty centuries, like sunshine trying to break through a cloudy sky. Now, the democracy that found its expression in the first French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the liberal movement throughout the world was not only incomplete upon the economic side and had later and with difficulty to become socialist in order to preserve its liberating intention, but also it was very sketchy and indefinite in the matter of education. This was due to the fact that the ideology of the Great Revolution was essentially middle class in its origins. It sprang from a social stratum already educated and so satisfied with the sufficiency of its general education and so accustomed to a supply of books and pamphlets that it did not realize that there was anything exceptional in the knowledge and freedom of thought it enjoyed. It did not even apprehend its immense and immediate obligations to the encyclopedists in organizing its ideas. It took their contribution for granted. It launched its generous proposition of universal equality indeed. But not only did it fail to realize the need to ensure freedom from economic pressure, but also it neglected to organize the education of the community as one whole. The American Revolution, in this respect, with, for example, its provision of state universities, seems to have been ahead of the French. Nevertheless, it took the better part of a century for democracy to realize, even to a limited extent, the third vital implication of its demand for liberty, equality, and fraternity, which was the free and necessary universal education of the democratic community to a common level of understanding and cooperation. Communities in which every mentally normal citizen can at least read and write have existed for less than a century. Communities in which the common education rises much above that level do not yet exist. That freedom and equality are incomplete without freely accessible knowledge and free and open discussion is a necessary completion of the democratic idea. But it is one upon which the inquirer into the meaning of democracy will get the least assurance. If he asks leading questions, he will get a general admission that universal education and sound, ample information upon every matter of collective concern are necessary elements in the democratic proposition. But unless he himself introduces the matter, he will hear very little insistence upon this vital completion of the democratic ideal. He will indeed encounter a certain amount of impatience if he stresses this matter. Ordinary people resent being told that they are undereducated or wrongly educated. To the common man and woman today, prepared though their minds seem to be now for a socialist cosmopolis of a quite generous type, education still means just any old education, and news is what a press runs entirely for profit and political and social ends, and 
in the British system, a government-controlled radio choose to tell them. It is the education they have grown up to, and so far they have not yet awakened to its insufficiency. They want to carry out these new conceptions of life at that level. To raise that level seems to them irksome and uncalled for. It is still possible, therefore, for the egalitarian impulse to be effectively frustrated in practice by deliberate and systematic miseducation and misinformation. The common man and woman know now in general terms and pretty definitely what they want, but they still do not know how to state and demand what they want. Private enterprise is able to defend its appropriations quite effectively because it owns the press almost entirely the news agencies and the distributing trades, and so it can distort values and distract the public from crucial issues in the boldest fashion. There's no countervailing equipment of the public mind in the common schools. These are essentially conservative institutions, adapting the common man to the social order in which he finds himself, preparing him for that state of life of which he has been called and given him no reasonable intimations of the great drama of change in which he has to play his part. As we have shown, the whole mechanism of modern life demands organized collective control. Stars in their courses will not suffer the world's scramble of exploitation that wasted so much human possibility in the 19th century to go on. Our species cannot afford it under any conditions. But in face of the essential ignorance of the modern democratic community, the enterprising owner, the profiteer that is to say, can keep his grip upon his advantages far more effectively than he can in the face of a dictator with unqualified powers. He can resist socialization far more effectively. Against the capitalist's obstructive power, the willfulness of the dictator is able to operate far more vigorously than the will of the undereducated, ill-informed and suggestible democracies. So that in certain ways, the dictatorships have undoubtedly been able to get ahead of the democratic states. They have gone further on the way to socialization. While the industrial exploiter or the rich man struggles to keep his grip on the recalcitrant worker below, the dictator of the totalitarian state takes him firmly by the collar. Wealth finds itself handled with an extraordinary disrespect. Dictatorships imply collectivism. They are forced to collectivism in the face of a bargaining wealth and the uneasy claims of their own supporters. They are forced towards a comprehensive efficiency. The only effective response to totalitarian collectivism on the part of a freedom-seeking community is a scientifically planned and directed socialism. From the economic point of view, the whole difference now between the reality of dictatorship and the ideal of democracy when it is worked out to its practical completion, is the difference between socialization in the dark, with all the progressive corruption, appropriation, and inefficiency that spring up in the dark, and socialization in the light of an alert and implemented public opinion. Between socialization by compulsion or socialization by enlightened consent. From the point of view of the individual, the difference is one between a deadening servitude and a continual participating enlargement of responsible life. No existing institutions coming to us from the past can represent democracy as it is thus conceived. It is a far bolder thrust towards a new world order than any of these adventurous systems that stand in its path. 
If now we fill in the gaps in the current conception of democracy by insisting upon complete educational equalitarianism, if we dot the I's and cross the T's that are still undotted and uncrossed, if we transcend any accepted contemporary rendering of the idea, then democracy does indeed become a very magnificent conception of a new life for man. If democracy means economic justice and the attainment of that universal sufficiency that science assures us is possible today, if democracy means the intensest possible fullness of knowledge for everyone who desires to know and the greatest possible freedom of criticism and individual self-expression from anyone else who desires to object, if democracy means a community saturated with the conception of a common social objective and with an educated will like the will of a team of football players to cooperate willingly and understandingly upon the objective, if democracy means a complete and unified police control throughout the world to repress the financial scramble and gangster violence which constitute that closing phase of the sovereign state and private ownership system, then we have in democracy a conception of life for which every intelligent man and woman on earth may well be prepared to live, fight or die, as circumstances may require. But that rounded off and completed realization of democracy is still only establishing itself against great resistances in the human mind. It is not as yet established there, and still less is it established as the guiding faith of any political or social organization, whatever. 7. Where is democracy? Where, in all this collection of governments Mr. Street would have us federate, is there one that satisfies this plain bare statement of the growing and deepening significance of the democratic idea? France depends for its mental expression upon an alliance of reactionary papers, and for its foreign policy upon an association of diplomatists and army chiefs which has held together throughout its dynastic and political fluctuations in one consistent policy for the security and advancement of la France. America tempers a wide tolerance of free speech and personal criticism with a press-sustained persecution of labor leaders, radicals, reds, and agitators generally. Its press, if less centralized than the French and so less concerted, is equally commercial. The freedom of expression of its university professors is pinched between the possibility of dismissal for excessive outspokenness from above and the attacks of the pressman from below. The American record of successfully framed up cases against troublesome workers' leaders is a long and discreditable one, and one need only glance reproachfully at the distressful history of color prejudice unincorporated townships, and the exploitation of penal labor in the more backward states. And yet, these two are the democracies par excellence. Most of the European states invited to Mr. Street's Federation are not even democratic in profession. Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Holland, and the British Empire are monarchies. The monarch professes to act only on the advice of his or her ministers. But as a matter of fact, the court is a center of social and administrative influence of an entirely undemocratic sort. A crown is the symbol of graded privilege. In the place of Heil Hitler or the fascist salute, 
these royalist peoples, at the sound of their particular royal anthem, stand stiffly to attention with an air of ineffable reverence. It is quite a parallel act of worship, and as complete a repudiation of the personal responsibility of democracy. The disintegrating British Empire is now, one has to recognize, a system of government almost completely out of popular control. Practically, it has undergone a reactionary revolution in the last decade, and a loose-knit combination of court, church, army, and wealth, intensely class-conscious, intensely self-protective, has resumed control of affairs. It is an oligarchy, skillful of the assimilation of useful or formidable individuals, but without the slightest disposition to amalgamate with anything else on earth. Its ruling motive is the fear of dispossession. Decisions involving peace or war are made without any pretense of consulting any surviving popular will. And the whole capitalist press, the cinema, the radio, and indeed all possible means of influencing opinion, concentrate upon the assertion of the rightness and inevitableness of these decisions. Dissent is a muffled and ineffective squeaking, and any inconvenient facts are kept from the public by requests for suppression that are in effect commands. There is a special Form D sent around to the press which it is extremely unwise to defy. Most of the acts of Mr. Chamberlain since September 1938 have been as irresponsible as those of any dictator, equally unscrupulous and far more shameful. He has indeed made himself a dictator by tact and betrayal instead of by violent seizure. There is, in the long run, very little to choose between a bully dictatorship and a tact dictatorship. The latter may be less crushing, but more insidious in its attack upon human dignity. These are the practical realities Mr. Street has to face. The will for federation in any of these governments is far more than doubtful. Even if presently they have their backs to the wall, they will all fight for their separate sovereignty to the last. No doubt it is true that in spite of much human inconsistency, much confused thinking, and many local abuses, there is still a powerful disposition throughout all the Atlantic and Scandinavian communities towards liberty, equality, and world brotherhood. It breaks out in literature, discussion, and conduct. It expresses itself plainly in books, spontaneous press writing, plays, and films. This is most manifest in America, and there is in consequence a growing disposition of the British authorities to intercept and censor the too outspoken American weekly press. An increasing number of English readers subscribe to American periodicals to learn what is being hushed up in their own country. With every acceleration of communications, this American influence will increase. Moreover, there are plenty of American professors manifestly disposed to take the risk of outspokenness and say what they like. If at times they veil their meaning a little from the possible hostility of the unintelligent in a deliberate obscurity of technicality that sometimes borders on jargon, that does not prevent their speculating very boldly about economic, social, and international processes, much more boldly and freshly than their English equivalents. Again, the bitter jests of such a French periodical as Le Canard and Chêne are saturated with the soundest democratic scorn and derision. 
the desire of a considerable section of enlightened Frenchmen to sustain and complete the mighty impetus of the Declaration of the Rights of Man is genuine and obstinate. They will not willingly suffer France to desist from her traditional task of world enlightenment. For some years, in the face of overwhelming financial and political difficulties, there has been a gallant attempt to produce a modern encyclopedia, which might repeat the preparatory role of the original encyclopedists for the vaster needs of today. Neither Americans nor British, with their vastly greater resources, have attempted anything so comprehensive and illuminating. It would be possible to quote hundreds of instances, names, books, speeches, utterances, and acts to show that all round about the world in a great multitude of still all too dispersed intelligences, democracy lives and advances. But these evidences of a considerable and growing will for a reasonably complete democracy do not alter the fact that the directive forces in control of this miscellany of states Mr. Street and his disciples would have us federate are scarcely more democratic in structure and method than those running the frankly anti-democratic states. Indeed, to call the threatened world convulsion, if and when it breaks upon us, a war between the allied democracies of the world and totalitarian states, will be putting all too fine a name upon it. The reality will be a war of established governments and governing systems claimed to represent democracy, but quite unwilling and unprepared to set themselves to realize the modern democratic idea against expansive, desperado governments that have shown themselves contemptuous of democratic pretensions and dangerous to the general peace. It will be another war for the alteration or preservation of frontiers. It is almost impossible to hope that this complex of warfare towards which the world is drifting can assume any other form than a confused alliance against these more lawless military powers. Whatever formal victories or defeats ensue, it is incredible that there will not be a steady deterioration in human morale through the stress of the struggle. If the so-called aggressor states are defeated, their unfortunate common people will be saddled with the war guilt of the governments that have enslaved and ruined them. They will be made to pay again. Another insincere attempt to organize collective security on the lines of the League of Nations, another unstable League of Victors will simply accumulate the necessary resentments for another collapse into still more violent conflict. Fresh brigand adventurers will appear, trading on the shame and despair of the vanquished. It is this that makes the approach of a Second World War storm so black. Whichever side emerges as a particular phase as victorious is really a secondary issue. The practical loss of freedom, the usurpation of controls, seems inevitable. The possibility of an emergence of any sort of enchantment of democracy from the threatened melee seems very slight indeed. Democracy is still too incomplete, unorganized, and unprepared to bring about any such happy ending. Catastrophe is still steadily outrunning education. We are at present driving rapidly towards a repetition of 1914 to 1919 on a vastly more disastrous scale. Our present peace, what passes for peace, is no settlement, it is merely a postponement. Conceivably, a sort of undeclared war of boasts, threats, alliances, armament, and counter-armament may yet 
Through some years of feverish pseudo-peace, hold back the sparring, gesticulating antagonists from an actual world war explosion. But this peace will be so full of stresses, it will tie down men so completely to immediate military, propagandist and diplomatic controls as to debar the thought of any revolutionary readjustment during this interlude of preparation. It is not as though we were really gaining time to think. Scare and crisis will follow scare and crisis. From day to day we shall awaken and ask wearily, Is it still peace? Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.